a curious statement. He tells the Corinthian Christians that someone uh, might come to them and proclaim a different Jesus than the one Paul and his fellow apostles had already proclaimed to them. A different Jesus. Now, what does Paul mean by someone preaching a, a different Jesus? Well, instead of preaching Jesus of, of Nazareth, did he mean that someone might preach uh, about another person altogether that had the same name as Jesus of Nazareth, but maybe he was Jesus of Jerusalem or Jesus of Hebron or Jesus of Jericho? Well, that's highly unlikely. What he probably means is that someone might proclaim Jesus of Nazareth, but that he would twist the truth about him. See, such a preacher might use the name Jesus, the, the name Jesus that we know and the Corinthian Christians knew, but that he would change his essence, change something fundamental about him. Perhaps this person might change Jesus' teaching. Maybe they would speak false things about his person. It could be that they corrupt the message of the salvation he achieved. But whatever the case may be, they were not proclaiming Jesus as he truly was. And that was a danger for the Corinthians. And this sort of thing is also part and parcel of the second commandment. Many people use the name of God. They're not denying God. They acknowledge that he is there. But when asked what they mean when they use the word God, you get something that is not biblical at all. You get a, a twisted picture of who God is. And the Lord our God commands us. Not to do this, and this is included in the second commandment. We're not to make an image of him. And as we hope to see this afternoon, central to this commandment means also knowing and acknowledging God as he truly is. So that's why I've also summarized the sermon this afternoon as follows. In the second commandment, the Lord God commands us to know him as he truly is. And we'll look at three things. We'll first explore uh, why we corrupt or might corrupt the true knowledge of God. That'll be our first point. And then we're going to look at how Christ enables us to have true knowledge of God. That's our second point. And then we're going to look at ways we grow in gaining true knowledge of God. That'll be our, our third point. So first of all, we're, we're going to look at why we corrupt or why we might corrupt the true knowledge of God. So God commands us here not to make an image of him. No statues of him, no pictures, no replicas, no casting him in the form of an animal or a person. And the first question we might ask is, why does God command this? Why is he concerned about this? After all, many of us are probably visual people. And maybe we think, you know, I think an image would, would be useful for me, helpful for me in, in worship. It might help me concentrate more or something like that. 
However, an image of God, the problem with an image of God is that it can never capture who God truly is. If we were to make an image of God, it, it will always corrupt his perfect being. Some kind of statue or replica would, would rob God of his glory. Well, the next question we should ask, though, is why is the human heart tempted by this sin? What is the motivation to make an image of God? Now, what's at the root of it? You see, I, I'm fairly confident that none of you have tried to make a statue of God and, and set it up in your home in order to worship God through it. So we want to get at the root of it to see how this applies to our lives as well. Well, why is the human heart tempted by the sin? The answer is found in understanding who God is and understanding who we are. See, the eternal God, he created humans in his own image to, to have fellowship with him. Humans were meant to live in full fellowship with the God of glory, the God of infinite majesty. But what do we see happen right after the fall into sin? We see Adam and Eve, they're hiding from God, hiding from him. They wanted to, to flee his presence. They became scared of God. They knew they were sinners. They knew they were unable to have the same fellowship with this, this God of infinite glory. And, and these things, these same things now infect every person on earth. It's part of our uh, sinful nature as well that we have to struggle with. And, and think about God for a moment. Right? His majesty, his, his glory, and his holiness and justice, they are infinite. They are perfect. And as sinful humans, we know, we just know in our hearts that we cannot live in the presence of this awesome God as we are just in our sin. We cannot do it. And as long as people remain in their sin and, and remain estranged from God, the human mind will go crazy thinking about God as he truly is. Just cannot handle who God is. It's overwhelming. And so what does the fallen person try to do? Instead of changing themselves by repenting and asking for forgiveness. Instead, simple humans try to change who God is, right? Instead of changing ourselves, the temptation is to try to change who God is. Of course, that's never going to work, but the simple human heart tries to do it anyways. You see, our, our sinful nature Simple hearts don't want to acknowledge who God is, that he's our creator, that he's infinitely majestic and glorious, that he's worthy of all of our worship. Our fallen hearts would rather not acknowledge that, but put it away. And this is what motivates the human heart to corrupt the true knowledge of God by making an image of God. After all, if, if you can make an image of God... Suddenly, you can put yourself over top of God in a way. 
Instead of confessing that he is our creator who made us in his image and we must do his will, making an image of God flips us around. All of a sudden, we become the creators of God's image. And now God must do our, do our will. You can see something of this in our reading from Jeremiah 10. Now, Jeremiah is, first of all, speaking of the heathen nations and their false gods, but it will apply. And he says, people, they chop down trees, they shape metal into images, they form an image of their God. But they're idols, they cannot walk, they cannot speak, they cannot hear. And that means that this person who made this idol is now in control of their God. And simple humans try to do the same thing with the living God. Gives us this gives the human heart the sense that it is above God, that we can shape it, that we can play creator of God. And making an image of God, it, it encourages the human heart to continue in sin. And that's because an image of God, it always degrades God. It drags him down. It robs him of his glory, his majesty, and all his other perfections. And if, if we can do that in our minds, if God has changed in our minds, if he's degraded, if he's made to be little in our hearts, then suddenly sin becomes no big deal in our, in our minds. And that's what the human heart really wants. Because if, if God is no big deal then sin is no big deal, and so people think they can continue on in it. If God is made to be small, then suddenly he's not worthy of all of my worship and all of my obedience. And so people want to corrupt the image of God, continue on in sin. In the same vein, the human heart may also want to make an image of God also because of pure fear. Right? Think again of Adam and Eve. They, after they sinned, they tried to hide from God. They did not want to be confronted with God's glory and justice. And making an image of God can have the same root. Because if you make an image of God, then you are not confronted with God's perfect glory and justice. But just a defacing of it. It can be a way of hiding from God's true person. After all, who can, who can bear to stand before God with all of his majesty and power? Not one of us can. Listen only to how he's described in Jeremiah 10, our reading. There's none like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations, for this is your due. The Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. It is he who made the earth by his power. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens. Right? The sinful human heart on its own cannot bear to stand in the presence of this God and be confronted by him. So our hearts desire to corrupt his image. And seeing the root of this sin shows that we are, we all, 
can be prone to this sin as well. Again, I'm quite confident that none of you have a statue in your home that you have carved out and said, this is, this is the Lord. But making an image of God is not simply something the, the ancient Israelites fell for. We can easily twist his image in an attempt to make God the way we want him to be. Maybe we don't like a certain aspect of God. Maybe we're simply afraid of him like Adam and Eve were. Maybe we want to continue on in sin and so don't want to be confronted with his perfect justice and holiness. And all of these things can tempt us to change in our minds, change in our hearts who God truly is, to corrupt the true knowledge of him. And even if we don't cut down a tree to make a physical image of God, maybe we still try to cut out parts of the Bible to make God in the image that we like. If we don't like his judgment and wrath, we may say things such as, you know, the Old Testament God was a God of wrath, but the New Testament God, he's a God of love. That's cutting out part of our Bible so we might not like it. Or we could do the opposite thing. If we have a vindictive spirit, we might not want to talk about God's grace to people who we think are extra sinful. The prophet Jonah, he struggled with this very thing. Why did he not go and preach to the people of Nineveh? It's because he knew in his heart, that God was a God of mercy and grace. And he didn't like it. And so he fled from the presence of the Lord, says Jonah 1. Didn't like who God was. And so he wanted to ignore that aspect of God to, to others. Didn't want God to be gracious to the Ninevites. So we are all capable of of this sin, corrupting the true knowledge of God, brings us to our second point. So we've just seen the reasons why we might be tempted to break this commandment. And having seen this, we might want to jump uh, right into how, how we are to keep this commandment, right? Think of how ways we're tempted by this sin, and then, okay, how can we keep this commandment? However, we need to first look at the root of this sin, how it can be overcome, we need the right remedy against this sin. Otherwise, we won't really be changed. And the good news is that the right remedy is found in our Lord Jesus Christ. And to see this, I want to point again to Adam and Eve after the fall into sin. They felt exposed before God and became afraid of Him. They hid themselves. And they also made clothing of fig leaves to, to try cover themselves up. And this feeling of being exposed before God has not gone away. And, and indeed, we are exposed before God. Hebrews 4 says, No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And as we saw in the first point, uh, hiding from God can take an, another form. It can't be, doesn't have to be physical hiding. It can be, take the form of trying to change who God is. 
Simple humans try to hide behind a corrupted image of God. But what did God do for Adam and Eve after they sinned in the garden? Article 17 of the Belgian Confession puts it so well when it says, When God saw that man had plunged himself into physical and spiritual death and made himself completely miserable, our gracious God in his marvelous wisdom and goodness set out to seek man when he trembling fled from him, and he comforted him with the promise that he would give him his son. God came to them in his grace. And then as we see from Genesis 3, God removed their, their fig leaves by which they tried to hide being exposed before God, and he, he covered them up properly with skins of an animal. He removed their need to hide from him. That fear of being exposed before God was, was calmed by their creator. And this is also what we need to cure our desire to, to corrupt God's image. And this is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. See, God in Christ has removed our, our need, our desire to hide away from God. That's because Christ has stepped into our place and he has paid for all of our sins. He took our sins upon himself. He bore our iniquities. He took our shame upon himself. And he suffered and died so that we would be completely reconciled to God. That our relationship to God would be made right. And through faith in Jesus Christ, God also counts to us the perfect righteousness of Christ. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5. God made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And consider also Galatians 3. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ or have clothed themselves with Christ. We are clothed with the perfection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's this work of Christ that allows us to stand before Almighty God. It's this work of Christ that allows us to come before him without fear. To quote the Belgian Confession again, there's this time Article 23, our righteousness before God. The obedience of Christ is ours when we believe in him. And this is sufficient to cover all our iniquities and to give us confidence in drawing near to God, freeing our conscience of fear, terror, and dread so that we do not follow the example of our first father, Adam, who trembling tried to hide and covered himself with fig leaves. See, it's because of this work of Christ that we don't need to corrupt God's image to to hide ourselves from him. Instead, we can come into his glorious presence of God in Christ. We can soak in the beauty of God as he has revealed himself in his word. 
We can begin to do now what the as the Westminster Catechism says, we can glorify God and enjoy him forever. We can stand in awe of all of his attributes, his perfections. That brings us to our third point. Now, in light of what we have in Christ, we now aim, we make it our aim to grow in obedience to the second commandment. And this means, first of all, avoiding the, the sin described in, in Jeremiah 10. God exhorts his people there. You know, don't, don't learn the ways of the nations. The customs of the people, they're, they're just vanity, right? They cut down a tree, the craftsman shapes it. They decorate it with silver and gold. They nail it down so that it can't move. Well, they're idols. They're just like scarecrows in a field. They can't speak. And they have to be carried for they can't walk. And God is teaching his people. Now, why follow in the ways of the pagans who have no hope? Look at their useless idols. Look at their gods. They serve gods who aren't real. They serve gods who cannot save. Their gods need to be created by their worshipers. They need to be nailed down so they don't fall over. They need to be carried because they can't move their legs. But my people... Look at your God. You serve the living God. Don't try to degrade him, deface him, deglorify him. Why would you try to strip your God of his beauty and his majesty and his awesome power? Don't you know that your God is the God who saves? He is the God in whom you can put your full trust. He's a God who carries his people. He is yours, your Father. God is your God through Jesus Christ. You have been reconciled to him. And so now instead of corrupting the knowledge of God, we can study who our God truly is. And we have the glorious privilege, beloved, the glorious privilege of coming to know this God as he truly is. It's a wonderful privilege. God, by his grace, has made himself known to us. He could have kept himself hidden, but he has not. He's allowed us to study who he is. And he has revealed himself to us in magnificent ways Coming to know him as he truly is is worth a lifetime of study. You know, it's wonderful just how much God has revealed to us. Of course, we'll never know everything about him. Simply impossible for us to do. But God has revealed many things to us about who he truly is. And to quote our reading from the Belgian Confession, Article 2, we know God by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, which is before our eyes as a most book, wherein all creatures, great and small, are as so many letters leading us to perceive clearly God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. Right? Just look around you. Look around you. God is showing you right now his incredible power. His amazing wisdom and his overwhelming goodness in his creation. 
Again, just look around you. It's all calling out to us that God is there, that He is marvelous, that He is a God of beauty. Again, we can soak this in. This is our God. Why would we corrupt His image? Why would we corrupt this true knowledge of Him? Look at this glorious God and worship Him. Think about what we read in Jeremiah 10. It is the Lord who made the earth by His power, who established the world by wisdom and by His understanding, stretched out the heavens. He makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes the lightning with the rain. The natural, sadly, the natural tendency of our our sinful hearts is to suppress this truth, truth about God shown in creation. See, the... The natural person does not want to acknowledge God and His glory. How sad. Christ has made us God's children. And so instead of suppressing the knowledge of God, we can revel in it. Right? This creation provides a feast to our eyes that shows us the magnificence of our God. As the old hymn puts it well, this is my Father's world. The birds their carols raise. The morning light, the lily white, declare their maker's praise. And we too can declare our maker's praise as we enjoy the the wonderful goodness of our God displayed in this creation. Article 2 of the Belgian Confession gives us one more way how God makes himself known to us. There we read, second, God makes himself more clearly and fully known to us by his holy and divine word, as far as is necessary for us in this life to his glory and our salvation. And so if we, if we truly want to know who God is, if we want to know who he truly is, and we need to study the Bible, God's inspired word, tells us so much of who our God is. Again, I'm, I'm sure you're not tempted to make a statue of God, but how does this commandment apply to us today? It applies so much in, in coming to know God truly as, as He has revealed Himself in His Word. And if you refuse to read the Bible because you because you don't really like who God is or you're scared of Him, you're essentially making the same mistake as Adam and Eve. Essentially trying to hide from God if you refuse to open up God's Word and and read about who God is. Remember what Christ has done. He's given us peace with God. This allows us to study the Bible in faith and to submit to what God says about Himself on every page. When we do that, when we, when we study every page of Scripture, then we gain an accurate, accurate picture of who God is. Listen to all the things the Bible tells us about God. This is just a small sampling. The Bible tells us about God's wrath. Take Psalm 90, verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? This is part of who our God is. And so we submit to that. 
The Bible tells us about God's justice. Psalm 97, verse 1 and 2. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. This is who our God is, perfectly just, perfectly righteous. Scripture teaches us about God's compassion. Take Psalm 113, or 103, verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. This is our God, our glorious God. And in God's word, we also hear about God's love. Take only those well-known words from John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And beloved, that's just a small sampling. And we could go on and on with all of God's perfections revealed in Scripture, including his holiness, his faithfulness, his mercy, his power, his eternity, his wisdom, and so on. And so on. It's worth a lifetime of study. And as we do this more and more in faith, then we will come to see that our God is indeed the overflowing fountain of all good. Amen. Let's now respond to the preaching of God's word by singing together Psalm 135. Uh, the stanzas 2, 6, 7, and 10.